So uh, this morning, we're starting a, a new series, like I mentioned before, and that series is titled Possessions. I think we got the, the graphic on the screen there, yeah. Um, and as I looked at the, the scriptures uh, that were coming up in our lectionary passages, which is, which is a series, a three-year series of scriptures from the entire Bible, and that dictates our Sunday morning uh, scriptures that we use. I was, I was noticing a pattern about money and wealth and things like that. And actually, that's, that's not hard to do in the Bible because money and, uh, and how we think about possessions in life, it comes up m- more than almost any other issue. And, and yet, um, it seems like the conversations about money and church, even if there's a lot of them in certain places, in certain areas, they don't go very deep. It's basically like, hey, you know, like make sure you're tithing and giving to the church and that kind of thing, which is important, of course, because we couldn't have a church if we didn't do that. But there's so much more in the scriptures. And it, it brought me to this title for this series, this uh, this title called Possessions. And if you were to take off the S, it, it would just say Possession. And it, it reminds me of things like the, the Lord of the Rings, where you have the ring and, and the golem who, who thinks the golem is possessing, he thinks he's possessing the ring, but really the ring possesses him, right? And, it, and it's, such a, it's such a stark and easily identifiable uh, metaphor for our lives, because we, we own possessions, we own things, and yet somehow we find ourselves, no matter if we have a little or a lot, sometimes in a position where it feels like we're actually owned or even possessed by either the actual things we've accumulated or the money that we have or the hopes in which that we will find the right amount of stuff. We will someday be satisfied and that desire possesses us. We as Americans, usually we unquestioningly take the raise, take the job with a higher salary because we believe even though, uh, we believe that more money is less problems, even though there was a famous, notoriously large linguist who said the opposite of that. Some of you got that now, some of you might get it on your way home. It reminds me of this passage in scripture that is a haunting passage, both literally and metaphorically, that I wanna read to you right now from the same gospel, the gospel of Luke, and I think we have it on the screen as well. Luke chapter 11, verse 24 to 26, Jesus says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. I'm, I'm not passionate about talking about money per se, but I am passionate about talking about the things that money brings up in our lives, the way it exposes parts of our heart. There, 
is this mentality that I've had in my life, and most people I know have had in, the, in their lives, where we think we can remove a bad habit or a bad way of thinking or doing things, things that are harmful, without replacing it with something else. And, and this, this parable makes plain that that doesn't, that doesn't really work. You know, whether you're in a 12-step in a program or you're in some kind of self-help type of situation, the, the wisdom that has worked and passed down through, uh, through the ages, through the sages, says if, if you want to get rid of something bad in your life, then you can't just say no to something. You have to actually say yes to something else. That if you just seek to eliminate bad things from your life, from your habits and things like that, then you're just making a nice, neat hole for something else to fill that space. Anybody relate to that? You ever feel that? Like, oh, I had this thing whipped and then this thing popped up over here. I was, had a problem with alcohol and now I'm eating chocolate cake and ice cream every night at 1 a.m., right? Or whatever it may be. Um, I think this happens with money way more than we ever really talk about or admit in our culture. If you were to Google main causes of divorce, guess what the top two, it comes up in the top two, pretty much any list you find. Chocolate cake, close. Money and infidelity. Those two things, money and infidelity. Sometimes money's on the top, sometimes infidelity's on the top, just depending on, on who did the study and what, what will get more clicks on their website based on that. And I find that really interesting because I, I don't think that money is really the reason why people get divorced. I think what, it happen, what happens is the way money is handled in relationships it exposes through hundreds of tiny ways, tiny exchanges, things ignored and things exemplified. It exposes the way that we really think about what's valuable. So that when we remove some of these bad habits, but we fail to address something as, as core to us, as... as um, primal to us is how we deal with what we own and what we have. It's like kicking out that one impure spirit and not expecting that all of those issues that we have, all those underlying things about how we think about money and possessions and wealth, that we expect that that's not going to flood in and take the place. Ooh, I, I wouldn't mean to step on toes this early in the sermon. What happens for most of us, and when I say most of us, I just mean in our culture at large, is we have to experience something really bad before we really start to examine how we view money, possessions, resources in our lives. The divorce has to happen. And then, and then you get into another relationship and you start to say, oh, I'm having some of the same issues around these things. Maybe it wasn't my partner. Maybe it wasn't this uh, 
group or this church or this thing, maybe there's something going on inside of me that needs to be addressed. We have to hit some sort of rock bottom in our lives to really examine not just our relationship with other people, but how money is a conduit between those things and with God. We can experience that rock bottom both on a personal level and as a culture. Right now, we're dealing with all this supply chain issues and and fights over resources and how we get those resources and how do we need those resources or not. And we're headed towards what looks like some type of rock bottom communally as well. And all of these things are tied up in how we think about and our relationship to money. It's all connected to that. And here's what I want to say for any of you who grew up with this kind of narrative, just to get this out of the way. Money's not evil. It's not bad. It's not intrinsically like possessed by evil. It's it's just a tool. It's a tool that can expose what we want to do in the world. Because money is power. Money is influence. Money allows us to exert our will into the world. And like I said, the Bible talks about it a lot. And, you know, with the current state of things and social media and stuff, we can get on there and we can hear what other people are saying and judge each other really well. Like we can, we can really pinpoint what's wrong with other groups and other people. And um, the, the thing that I was struck by as I've been meditating on these scriptures and thinking about them is that in our culture, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of that related to money. There's a lot of biblical stances on things, but most of them don't have anything to do with money in the social sphere. You know, you know, what, I'm, you know what I'm talking about? There's, there's lots of things about, oh, what are, what are these folks doing over here, this group with, with this culture war and that thing over there? But there's not a lot of, hey, biblically, here's what it says about money. Let's, let's hold ourselves to that standard. I don't see it very often anyway. And it, it reminds me of the plank in the eye kind of thing. Like, like, a, like a American culture is just walking around with this giant plank in our eye related to money and resources, and we're so quick to point our finger every which way about it. Meanwhile, the whole world looks at us like, you guys are some greedy SOBs, and what do you think you're doing? Like, who do you think you are to judge? the re- Like, you use 25% of the world's resources, and you have 5% of the world's population. Like, we don't, we're not trying to hear anything you have to say about this stuff. Like, come correct before you want to do all that. To say it in a more scholarly way, Walter Brueggemann, an incredible theologian who, who resists the temptation to take easy polarizing sides on things, said this about it. Whether we are liberal or conservative Christians, we must confess that the central problem of our lives is that we are torn apart by the conflict between our attraction to the good news of God's abundance and the power of our belief in scarcity. So I wanna read that part again. The conflict between our attraction to the good news of God's abundance and the power of our belief in scarcity. A belief that makes us greedy, mean, and unneighborly. We spend our lives trying to sort out that 
ambiguity. So money is a tool, but the desire for things with this idea, this feeling that, that there's not enough, that it's a scarce world to live in can really master us. It can even possess us, so much so that Jesus, out of all the things he could have picked from, out of all the vices and all the terrible things out there that he could have picked from to make this contrast, he said, you cannot serve both God and money. That right there says, wow, maybe I should pay a little bit more attention to the way I I spend my, my resources if this was such a crux to the teachings of Jesus, to how we see the kingdom of God manifest in the world or not. Because the kingdom of heaven, if it's anything, it's a kingdom of abundance. So this morning, for the rest of our time, for the next few minutes, I just wanna talk about this idea that came up for me as I was reading this scripture this morning this scripture about this shrewd manager with all these weird statements in it. And it's this idea of entrepreneurship, but not just any kind of entrepreneurship, spiritual entrepreneurship. Okay? So what would it mean if we're, if we're looking at this passage? Here's, what I, here's the question that I, that I developed uh, thinking about it, praying about it, is what would it mean if we applied the same creativity that we apply to trying to amass wealth and possessions or to get out of some kind of financial jam? What if we applied that same creativity to our spiritual life? What would would it look like? How, How would our communities be different? How would our families be different if we didn't assume that that type of creativity, that type of thinking is only relegated to things that are unspiritual? And and it's a shame. It's a shame that we could ever get there with the Bible that we have in the American church without just having to stick our head in the sand because it's on every other page. I've got three children who are all home with a cold for the 50th time this year. Um, And my oldest son, Benjamin, during the pandemic, he was bored. uh, And uh, during the, the, the first year, the 2020 year, and he decided he was gonna sell rocks on the corner. Not those kind of rocks. Um, and, and so he started painting rocks that he would just find places and, and he, would, he set up a stand. And at first he just had a stand and it just said rocks, like on a sign. And, and all these colored rocks on the table and he was sitting right out in the sun. So he came in and he was all like hot and tired. And I said, well, why don't you just move that table over under the tree there? He's like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. And then I said, hey, maybe you could put some more things on your sign, you know, to entice people and, and like, and, and holler at them. Like when they're driving by, like wave at them and assume that they might be interested in the product that you have. And, and Benjamin usually doesn't take any of my advice. Like if trying to teach baseball, no, that's not how I'm swinging the bat. That's not how I'm throwing the ball. None of those kind of things. But for some reason, he took my advice and he's out there and he's got a sign and there's glitter on it and there's little symbols and pictures and stuff. And people are driving by and he's like, hey, 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 I'm selling rocks. I'm selling rocks. Like, 
And he, and he started getting into it. He started having different ideas. And, and, and one time this lady pulls over and she gives him a $20 bill for a couple of rocks. <laughs> and he's like, whoa, I need to up the prices. Like, I'm gonna start selling these for like 15 bucks a piece. And I'm like, nah, Benjamin, nah, that, that's not gonna work. And it, it reminded me, my little brother, he sold necklaces, like beaded necklaces. Did you sell anything when you were a kid? You ever do that? A lot of us did. A lot of us developed some kind of little business when we were a kid. Maybe it was just the lemonade stand, right? I've been to the Remington's lemonade stand back in the day. And, and there's something about us that that's just part of us. It's just part of who we are. Like we don't all grow up and say like, hey, I want to embark in a risky business venture and be an entrepreneur. But when we're kids, we kind of have this desire to kind of start a business and to think creatively about how we might do that and play around with exchange rates and things like that between services and goods. There's like a part of us that is an entrepreneur. And that part often gets dropped off and left out of our growth and our maturity and our spirituality and our faith. But let's go ahead and look at this scripture and see the way that Jesus in a pretty controversial kind of parable um, gives us a lot to think about, about how these things could live together. So Jesus told this to his disciples. He said, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So you got this really wealthy guy, and he's got somebody who manages his properties and, and, and his stuff. So the, the rich guy owner calls him in, and he, he says, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. So he's found out. He's found out about the way he's been pocketing some extra stuff. He's been doing things that were not in the best interests of the guy that he was employed by. And so verse three, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he's in this moment, this moment of time where he hasn't gotten fired yet, but he's about to be called in and given the papers and kicked out because he lives with this guy and manages all his stuff. That would be the, the way they do it most of the time back then. And he realizes his time is up and he's too old to dig, too ashamed to beg. Basically, he doesn't see any good employment opportunities for him in the future. He knows how to manage stuff, but... He, the word's gonna get around and nobody's gonna trust him to do that logistics managing job with his reputation anymore. So he says, I gotta think of a plan. I'm desperate. And out of this desperation comes some creativity. He says, oh, what could I do? Oh, I've got it. This will, this will make sure I'm not homeless when my boss kicks me out. So verse five, so he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down, quickly make it 450. So cuts what he owes in half. And we all know what, what the deal is there, right? So when he gets fired, this guy's gonna be like, hey, I remember you, you cut my bill of like $500,000 to $250,000. You're all right by me. You come stay with me as long as you need to to get back on your feet. And just to make sure, he goes to another, another guy, does the same thing. Then he asks the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. It's an incredible amount of money. 
And again, who's losing out here? The, the, the rich guy who, he, who he's worked for. And the next thing we hear is really weird. The master, verse eight, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. So that kind of ends the parable, that line right there. So the, the, the guy, the rich guy who's in charge of everything, he's like, hey, you know what? That was, that was pretty clever, man. That was, that was smart of you. Now get out of here, right? Kicks him out, but admires his boldness, his creativity when he was in a desperate scenario. And then the parable drops off and Jesus picks up and gives us a little bit of confusing insight into the parable. He says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Uh, <laughs> it's so funny to read commentaries about this parable because the people who study all the texts all day long, they might even just have studied Luke for like a year and written this commentary. They, they're doing all bending and twisting in all these ways to try to fit this into a really uncreative parable response, which I think makes the point. It makes the point Jesus is making right here that religious people aren't usually very creative. And, and if they are, if they are, they see it as something separate. Like, here's my religious life over here, and I'm going to pay my tithe, and I'm going to attend church. And then over here, I'm going to be really creative with my job to make as much money as I possibly can. But it's okay for my spirituality, because over here, I'm giving money to the church. Oh, nobody in here, I'm sure. I'm sure nobody in here has ever done that before. So he says, look, the folks who are desperate because they've screwed up or done things they shouldn't have, they develop this sense of creativity, this sense of shrewdness to kind of like figure out how to navigate the world in this way. And, and, and Jesus is saying like, and you guys are, you guys are coming up short, religious folk, like people of the light, like use some creativity, man. Like, do you know that there are 350,000 species of beetles? You're like, what, why did you say that, Jamin? Because I mean, we're, we're made in the image of a very creative God. Like 350,000 species of beetle. What is, what's the point of that? I don't, I don't think there's really a good point. I think it's just pretty colors, pretty looking, crazy looking beetles. Like imagine being an infinite being and you had an infinite amount of resources and you just were like another beetle another beetle, another beetle. You just keep making more because you just got so many ideas. You've got so much creativity. But we take that infinite being and we box God up into this little sphere of life and we say, this is what God cares about. God cares about me not cussing, not sleeping around, 
not drinking too much, which all those things will inhibit your creativity, no doubt, or you'll just get creative at doing those things, right? But we compartmentalize, and in this parable, I see Jesus smashing those compartments together and saying, no, 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 no. The shrewdness, the creativity, that desperation to try to solve interesting financial problems, bring it into your faith. Let it live there. Invite it into how you think about it. That morality, okay, great. Yeah, don't do this. Don't do that. Those are harmful things. Sure, wonderful. That's great. But if you try to just take out things, if you just try to remove the one impure spirit, but you don't replace it with creative and energetic action, Welcome in those other bad boys. We're, 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 not, we're not Switzerland. We're not the referee. We're not a neutral party as human beings. We're either moving towards one direction or another. That's just the way we're made. That's, that's how the scales tip inside of us. The idea of shalom. What does shalom mean? Tell me what it means. Just say it out loud. Peace, right? Unfortunately, that's the word that we have to, that we translate with shalom, uh, shalom or salome, uh, two different uh, transliterations, the same word. Peace, which peace in English just means no conflict, empty house. But the meaning of shalom is actually the presence of righteousness, that, that things are as they should be, that things that are disconnected become connected. And for us to begin to rearrange our thinking that God wants us to live in creative poverty with our resources and that the world is our discipler and our guide about how to spend and use what we own and what we possess doesn't get us very far. No amens. No, no amens. I'm up here all by myself. I, I'm, I'm lonely up here by myself during this one, y'all. Verse nine, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Man, I would love to hear a systematic theologian try to fit that verse in right there. Um, and some of you are like, what are you even talking about? Um, this word, uh, worldly wealth, you heard me sort of translating it as I was saying it. I wanna put it up on the screen. It's this Greek word, um, adikia. It doesn't, it, it doesn't really mean worldly so much as unrighteous, unrighteous. Unrighteousness of heart and life. So this is a weird thing to hear Jesus saying, I tell you, use unrighteous wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The, the, the most sense I can make out of this is, is this same type of idea of this sort of compartmentalization of over here is my business, my financial life, and over here is my life of faith, and I don't let the two cross. So what that means is we can, sometimes we can make up in our minds this division, 
it's not just a compartmentalization, but it's almost like a split personality thing. It's like over here, I'm willing to interact with the world in all of these ways, but then my spirituality is this other, other, other thing, and I almost act differently when I'm in that mindset and, and, and in that thing. And what I hear in this parable is Jesus saying like, hey, your hands are already dirty. Like you live in the dirt with everybody else. So how are you going to allow what you have, what you have access to, to be used to build things of eternal worth? Because as Proverbs 23, 5 says, if you, just, if you just look at riches, if you just can't cast a glance at them, they're gone. For, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. <laughs> oh, I love that. This, we've, got, we've got money, we've got possessions, and of course, you can't take it with you, right? That's the, it's a very common phrase that we think about. But while we've got it, what could we do? We can't force ourselves to feel desperate when we're not desperate. You know, we can't make ourselves go into a fight or flight mode. How many of you work best under pressure? Anybody? Like your best ideas come 30 minutes before the deadline, right? Some people are saying absolutely not. Some people are saying like, yes, I ride that adrenaline wave and those ideas come to me, right? We can't force those kinds of things in our life if that's not how we work. But what if, what if the same way that we were taught to think about don't sleep around, don't drink too much, don't do those things, what if, we, what if we spent the same amount of time or maybe even more time asking God for wisdom and creativity and insight and getting together not just for a Bible study or not just a men's group or, or a women's group or something as accountability partner to confess the last time that we looked at pornography or something like that. But what if we got around the table together and dreamt up creative ways to use our money and our resources to finance the kingdom of God, to, to re-examine our relationship. These are good moments for y'all to say some amens right here. To, to renegotiate our relationship with money and to, to expose some of that to the light. This is our, our mentality in America. It's like, are my money's over here. Don't talk to me about any of that, but pastor me, Jamin. Pastor me about all the things going on in my life. Help me evacuate this one spirit out of my life and leave the house empty. And meanwhile, I'm just gonna, all these other ones are coming in the back door here. That's a hard job. That's a hard job. You know, even, even in... Even in Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, there, there are important pieces that deal with finances in those things. It's not, it's not just, hey, you know, there, there are parts that say, hey, we will, we will um, stop fearing financial ruin in, the, in that 12-step literature, and we will learn to have a healthy relationship with money. It's just, these things are so tethered and tied together if they weren't, money wouldn't be up there as the one or second thing that, divorce, that people get divorced over because money only exists, it only has value, it only has purpose in relationship. 
And spirituality, hey, what is that about other than relationship? That's what it's about. So this, uh, this passage, it ends with kind of uh, several things, several short teachings that, uh, that are kind of tacked together here that Jesus said over his ministry. Verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly or unrighteous wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? You ever heard the... um, the old story parable, uh, Stone Soup. It's, uh, it's a story about this poor traveler who gets to a village and all the traveler has is a, is a pot, a metal pot, and starving. And the villagers won't give him any food to make any soup. And so he, he starts to make his own soup by filling up the pot with water and throwing a stone in it and boiling it and telling people like, I'm making this great soup, but it just needs a few more spices and things like that to, to get it going, you know? And so people are like, ooh, hey, that, well, I've got a little bit of this. I got a, a few extra potatoes. I've got a few extra this. I've, I've got a few extra that. And before you know it, there's this amazing, great smelling soup and it feeds the whole village because guess what? The whole village contributed to that soup. And the villager, I mean, the traveler goes on his way with a nice full belly. Some of us, we have the mentality that all we have is an empty pot and we couldn't possibly share. We couldn't possibly work together. We couldn't possibly share our resources in meaningful ways. We could just drop off a little pepper and salt, but that's about all, that's all, that's all I'm sharing because I got to look out for mine. And so we're all sitting here, and you know what? Let me say this. That is not true of the partners at Christ City Church. We have some incredibly generous people here, and we're doing some awesome stuff together. Um, but in a more general sense, we're all sitting with our resources and we've got this tiny, we got this little individualistic, selfish uh, perspective that there's not enough. But some of us can see that great soup. Some of us are spiritual entrepreneurs who can encourage, who can dream, who can apply those things together, who can say, you know what? I don't need there to be a separation between my spirituality and my finances, my creativity and my morality through mysticism and through practicality. I can let all of those things come together and you begin to smell this this amazing fragrance, this amazing thing that's being produced. So that whether we have a lot or we have a little, the spirit of generosity, the spirit of abundance in the gospel, if we dare to let that touch our pocketbooks, if we dare to apply the creativity, if we say, I'm going to meet with my CPA with the result 
with the goal of not just multiplying my personal wealth, but learning how to be the most generous person that I can be to build things of eternal worth and value, to build things that are based on relationship in the community. That's something that I can get really excited about. And this, this series that we're in, Possessions, and I'm closing, uh, we've, I've been working on this for a little while, some of the ideas around this, and it's changed a lot of times. But one of the things that we're doing, the second weekend of November, Robert Grisham is going to be uh, doing a, a financial workshop. Because what, what I don't want, I don't want a bunch of inspiring words from the front. Me and my wife are going to it as well. Inspiring words from the front. And then you know what? Some of us don't know how to interact with our finances. We've just got what was handed to us from our parents. And it's not sufficient to living a creative life. This is part of discipleship. If you haven't experienced this as part of a discipleship, a relationship to God and your faith, then this is an incredible opportunity for you to do so. So it's a morning workshop, three-hour workshop. Robert's going to be preaching in a couple weeks. He'll tell you more about it. But throughout this time, we're going to be working on this because money is a way to exert our will into the world through our relationships. And so if we ignore that and we say we're Christians helping to build the kingdom of heaven, we're hamstringing and we're hog-tying ourselves. Hog-tying. I don't think I've ever said that before. So remember when you were little and you sold that lemonade, right? <laughs> Brandon's shaking his head, no, I didn't do that. Work with me here, man. <laughs> that spirit in some way is in each of us. Let's tap into it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it, it doesn't leave us without resources, without the necessary ideas to, to broach all the areas of our lives, including money, including possessions, including those things. Would you speak to us um, by your grace and your mercy as we continue to worship together and we continue uh, in this thought experiment? Amen.